So we're going to go ahead and dismiss our children now. Um, we have a great time planned for you guys. If you go that direction, right through those doors, follow Mrs. Sandwald, and she will show you where we're going. Um, I've been preparing now for months to preach through the book of Ephesians, so I hope you guys are ready for this, because I am ready, and I am excited about this. Last week, we slowed down just to say, hey, before we dig into this, let's really look at the background, let's understand who the Ephesians are, who Paul is, why is he writing, what's their culture like, what are they dealing with, so that as we're reading this, we can understand sort of what he's getting at and then boil it down to how it applies to us. But now that we're going to be actually opening the book of Ephesians this morning and beginning to work through it, um, I've been really struggling with, with how to introduce it because, um, you know, if, if you have taken my challenge and read the book of Ephesians in the last couple of weeks, you already know that uh, right from the beginning, Paul wastes no time. He just digs right in and says, okay, I'm going to talk to you about very serious, very important doctrinal issues. There's a lot of theology in the book of Ephesians. Um, and theology is a little bit, uh, can be a little bit clunky. It's a little bit difficult to deal with sometimes. And sometimes all of this doctrinal stuff can just go right over our heads. So I I was thinking, how do, we, how do we sort of introduce all of that and lay the foundation? And I was watching something this week online. There was a conference um, uh, on financial stewardship that I was watching, and there was a guy speaking there who did a phenomenal job of just sort of introducing the concept that I think we need to understand as we get into the book of Ephesians. So rather than me re-saying what he said, I'm going to just show you a couple of minutes of what he said uh, his name is Kevin King, and he's speaking to a Christian group here about stewardship and just sort of laying this foundation. So watch the screen, and you'll see what I mean. ...on this room. Ladies and gentlemen, the information that I'm about to share with you is without question one of the two key ingredients for total success in the 21st century. The many requests that are made to fulfill the expectations from the first moment that you even consider the time that it takes to create the obligation. It must be necessary in order for others to save face if the problems can bring the subject whenever possible to involve the participants that would not normally have as much input under these working conditions. Now, they all see a need to react on short notice in each of these steps more closely before the issues can even be addressed. And I personally have found that most of the training in America begins by dividing the time, which is the basis that you must set standards for. The need is always followed by the solution as quickly as possible because one of the most important uses of this can become an even larger liability as the word spreads around the country. And it seems to embrace the entire meaning of the situation. If they could have appealed to each one of them before they even made their requests, now, this also applies to those who reach out to the natural result of continuous effort. And I believe if the right choice is made, a true appreciation of the two extremes are pursued, then all levels of people will benefit from this process at any given time. Now, as you well know, circumstances are definitely an indication that there's absolutely no element of chance for both pleasant or even unpleasant conditions. And by the way, these conditions can only exist in the most affordable manner. Now, there's one thing that I want to make perfectly clear, just like everything I've said up to this point. 
Everything I have said up to this point has been strictly Brannis because the cabochon is going out of the Cedal Foreign Staff. The Hyungathai with the Lachma said the Mendelsteins were Alicia Theodams, can't use it in the Bodnis, and it was definitely a Hehevawat. If the Makhos got into sick those Malhekams, we go up with you by late law. Are there any questions so far? Did you guys get that? Everybody follow that just fine? That is the way a lot of us think it's going to be when somebody stands up and says, okay, we're going to talk doctrine now. We're going to talk theology now. And we go, oh boy, here it comes. Because there's going to be all these words coming that I have never heard and I don't understand. And they have all these syllables and they have all these Latin roots and Greek words and all this kind of stuff. And sometimes, you know, pastors just show off their education. They just want us to all know that they know Greek and Hebrew and all this kind of stuff. And we're just going, what on earth is this guy talking about? And so a lot of us are intimidated when we come to the Word of God and we realize, all right, we're getting into some of those deeper passages now. We're getting into some of that stuff that really sort of digs deep and says, you're going to need to understand this because it's foundational for everything. But it involves some real thinking. It involves some real challenge. And if you're not used to doing that, you could be super intimidated. Let me just ask you this question. How many of you uh, read theology books for fun? Just go ahead and raise your hand. Nobody. Nobody here? I'm the only one who reads theology for fun? Okay. Well, what I did was I just um, I grabbed the theology book off my shelf, um, and I wanted to uh, make sure. Uh-oh, did I lose my place marker here? There we go. That's something. I don't know what that is. Um, let me just read this to you. Ah, I lost my place. Here we go. Here we go. Premillennialist G. Ladd argued that the phrase came to life refers to the literal resurrection of these believers, that it is not used of any spiritual resurrection of the souls of the righteous at death. Thus, he continued at the beginning of the millennial period, part of the dead come to life. At its conclusion, the rest of the dead come to life. Finally, Ladd admits... This is the only passage in the entire Bible that teaches a temporal millennial kingdom, and there is only one other passage in the New Testament which may envisage a temporal reign of Christ between his parousia and the telos, 1 Corinthians 15. Yet in his commentary on the same verses, amillennialist W. Hendrickson asserts, in this entire passage there is not a single word about a resurrection of bodies, so the thousand-year reign takes place in heaven. As to the binding of Satan during the millennial reign, the work of the binding of the devil was begun when the Lord triumphed over him and his temptations in the wilderness. For Hendrickson, Satan is now bound in this age, the millennial age, in which Christ rules in heaven with his victorious saints. Meanwhile, R. Muncie seems to say something in between. He distinguishes between the form of what the text of Revelation says and the content of meaning of the author attempted to convey to his readers. Muncie observes, in short, John describes the millennium in temporal terms, but its essential meaning cannot be restricted to the form in which it was communicated. In other words, the author may well have employed language that seems to indicate a literal period of time, and this probably originated in the dominant religious conceptions of the time of the author. But the essential truth of prophecy could well mean, says Muncie, that we will cease to find in Revelation 20 the prediction of an eschatological era. Did you get that? Okay. All kinds of words that we're not used to hearing, all kinds of ideas that we're not used to grappling with, and, and we go, hey, whatever happened to Jesus loves me, this I know, I, I got that part, right? And, and, and we could get a little bit sort of overwhelmed and intimidated, 
And um, if you're a person who gets intimidated by this sort of thing, then I guess I have good news and bad news. Let's start with the bad news for you. The bad news is that the book of Ephesians is filled with doctrine. In fact, if you go, if you, the book of Ephesians is six chapters, the first three are filled with foundational doctrine of the Christian faith, but not the stuff you were taught in second grade Sunday school. This is stuff that is foundational, it's essential to understand if we're going to understand the rest of scripture, but this is the kind of stuff that most people don't ever grapple with. And if they don't grapple with it in their own study of the scripture, and if their pastors don't teach it to them in church, and if they've never been to some sort of advanced Bible college or something, then they're going to just be confused by all of this, and it's worth grappling with. So the bad news is you're going to have to grapple with this. We're going to be in Ephesians for a while. The good news is this. We serve an all-powerful, loving God who has given us the mind of Christ. We have, as Christians, at our disposal, the Holy Spirit. Now, let me ask you this. Who wrote the Bible? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit inspired every word of Scripture. And so, do you think the Holy Spirit understands what He inspired? And if He lives within us, then, is it possible for us to understand what the Holy Spirit inspired? And is it possible for us to not only understand it, but to be transformed by it so that our lives are different because we're living according to the truth. See, the, this um, series on Ephesians has a subtitle, Believing What's True and Living What You Believe. So we're going to spend three chapters going, okay, what's true, Lord? Give it to us. What's true? And then the next three chapters, we're going to be challenged by God to go, okay, how does this apply in my life? How are we going to live as Christians differently because of this? And so I just want you to understand, um, there's a lot here, but it is absolutely available to you. And I also want to make you a promise. I have no interest in showing off. I'm not here to make everybody feel dumb because I got books in my office that will teach me words that we haven't learned before. What my goal is, is to take the truth of God's word and make it absolutely accessible to all of us as followers of Christ. There was a, I've heard the saying that a good preacher is somebody who gets the cookies off the top shelf down to where the kids can eat them, right? Well, we're kids, all of us. And what we need to do is get access to God's word in a way that it's easy for us to understand, digest, and live by. And so we're going to take our time. We're going to take our time and carefully learn truths of scripture. And we're going to ask, okay, what are the implications of this? And there are going to be times when we're going to have to go, okay, well, what does this Greek word mean? And why is it in this tense? And what is Paul really trying to say here? And we're going to have to put our thinking caps on. But I promise you, you're going to get it. I also promise you this, that by God's grace, as he empowers me to preach the word, you are not only going to get educated in truth so that you understand in your head what is true, but God is going to help us to grapple with what difference does it make? Because the Word of God says that knowledge puffs up. What we don't need is a bunch more arrogant Christians walking around looking down on everybody else because we have some knowledge that somebody else lacks. What we want to see happen is for God to work it out into our lives. Because let's face it, when it comes to all of this, we can be dummies. And so what I want to do, have you ever been to the bookstore 
And have you noticed that now in a, book, a bookstore, if you can find a bookstore these days, that there's a whole section now for dummies. Did you know that? You go to Barnes & Noble, there's a section for dummies. You could do car repair for dummies or computer programming for dummies. We're going to do doctrine for dummies. And, and we're just going to go, okay, we're going to grapple with this until we get it. And this stuff is going to change our life. So if you're intimidated by this, if you're concerned, if you're thinking this is going to be boring or I'm not going to be able to handle this or whatever, I want you to repeat after me. You ready? God's word is true. And I can understand it. And everything going to be all right. Okay? It's all right. So let's begin. We're going to begin with a story of a woman named Hetty Green. Have you heard of Hetty Green? She died in 1916. And when she died, she was the richest woman in the world. Okay? She had an estate worth somewhere between $100 and $200 million in 1916 when $200 million was something, right? Nowadays, it's like, well, you know, $100 million, what's $100 million? That's what you get paid to play basketball now, right? But, but her, her fortune now, if you were to put it into today's money, would put her somewhere in the neighborhood of 3 to $4 billion of personal wealth, okay? She was wealthy. And she always had a way with money. When she was six years old, she came from a wealthy family. Her parents were in business. And she came from a well-to-do family. And when she was six years old, she would read the financial papers to her father every morning over breakfast. By the time she was 13 years old, she was handling the family's finances and investments. Okay? She married into the Astor family. You know, John Jacob Astor? They were among the richest people in the world at that time. She married into the Astor family, and she was so wealthy that she made her new husband sign a prenuptial agreement. Okay? And she's in the Guinness Book of World Records. And she's in the Guinness Book of World Records as the world's greatest miser. With all of that money, she lived as if she was dirt poor. She ate cold oatmeal for breakfast every morning because she didn't want to pay the price to heat it. You see this picture of her in stress. She's a lovely woman, isn't she? You think, you look at her and you go, well, she must have been in a funeral. No, that's the dress she wore every single day. And in fact, she didn't even wash it except at the hem because she didn't want to waste soap. Okay? So she was known as the Witch of Wall Street. Partially because of her lovely demeanor, which you can see in the picture, and partially because she looked like a witch because she wore this black dress all the time and a black hat, never washed it. She had a son, and her son uh, was injured in an accident, and his leg became infected, and it became clear that his leg was going to need to be treated, but she didn't want to pay a doctor to treat his leg, so she took him to a free clinic she didn't want to pay. When they figured out who she was, they said, we're not treating you for free. And so she stormed out with her son and went to another free clinic who also refused to treat him for free. And she took him around until there was no free clinic in the city that would treat him. And she finally found a doctor who would treat him for free. And by the time she found a doctor who would treat him for free, his leg had to be amputated. Isn't she lovely? Um, she died. <laughs> I laughed when she died. Sorry. She died of a heart attack 
because she became so stressed out while arguing over the price of a gallon of milk. What a life, huh? Let's see, what were we talking about? Oh yeah, we're going to do Ephesians today, right? Okay, Ephesians chapter 1. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Now, if, uh, if you don't know where Ephesians is, it goes Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, sort of in the middle to the back of your New Testament. Take your little ribbon or your bookmark or whatever you have in your Bible and mark it at Ephesians because for the next several months, every Sunday morning, I'm going to say, open your Bibles to Ephesians, all right? So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1 this morning. Let me just begin by reading the first three verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, the beginning of the letter here is pretty standard for Paul's letters. Uh, this is what you'll find something close to this in Philippians. You find something close to this in Colossians and Galatians and Paul's letters to the churches. What he always does is introduces himself at the beginning. And in this case, he doesn't just introduce himself, but he says who he's writing to. He says he's writing to the saints. Now, just to make sure nobody's confused by this, because the word saints is used often in a different way in these days in our culture, but a saint is not some very holy person who's now dead. A saint is anyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ. So we are saints. So when Paul is writing to the saints, he is writing to us, okay? And in this case, he's writing to the saints who are at Ephesus, but if we had been able to get a hold of an, uh, the oldest of the manuscripts of the book of Ephesians, we would find that Ephesus is not even mentioned in the older text as far as who he's writing to. He just says he's writing to the saints. And so uh, it is believed and understood that this letter did go to Ephesus first and that it was meant to be passed from church to church so that Christians everywhere in that part of the world would be able to read this and get this foundational doctrine as they began to walk with Jesus, all right? So he's writing it to saints, that's us. In Ephesians, we learned about Ephesus. We learned about the Ephesian people and how the church all began last week. And we saw that in Acts chapter 18 and 19. Now, all of that that we looked at last week in Acts 19 took place about A.D. 52. So give or take about 20 years after the time of the crucifixion of Christ. So the church is about 20 years old when Ephesus is planted. There's a church in Ephesus now, and we saw all that in Acts. Now another 10 years has passed by, and it's now about A.D. 62 when Paul is writing this letter back to them. And does anybody know where Paul is when he's writing this letter? Yeah, he's in prison. He's in prison in Rome, and he's awaiting this trial that he's going to have. And he's got all this time on his hands, and he basically decides, if I can't travel from place to place sharing the gospel, I'm going to write it down, and I'm going to get it distributed to the churches, even though I can't go and see them. And so we are thankful that Paul was in jail because we have these letters now that were inspired by the Holy Spirit while he was in jail. And so he introduces himself, and he gives them his blessing, and he tells them about his authority. He calls himself an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. In other words, I'm not an apostle, Paul says, because uh, I got elected to the office of apostle. 
and I'm not an apostle because I worked my way up in the hierarchy of the church, and I first became a deacon, and then I became a pastor, and then I became a bishop, and now I'm an apostle. That's not what he's saying. He, you will remember, we talked about this last week, he was on his way to Damascus to wipe out Christians, and who did he meet on the road to Damascus? Jesus. And Jesus confronted him and said, I'm going to make you my servant. And he became an apostle by the will of Jesus. So he reminds them that what I'm writing to you carries the authority of God. This is the word of God as an apostle who has been put in this position by Jesus. Now, what does all this have to do with Hetty Green, the witch of Wall Street? Good question. I'm glad you asked. Hetty Green became rich through inheritance. She came from a wealthy family. She inherited some money from her father. She inherited some money from her mother. She inherited other amounts from aunts and uncles who died. She inherited a total of about $5 million so that when she started adulthood, she already had $5 million, and she turned that into her estate of $1 to $200 million by the time that she died. She received an inheritance, and yet, even though she's one of the richest people on the planet, she lived like a pauper. Now, here's the deal. I have known so many Christians like this. Having inherited all that we have inherited in Christ, we are living spiritually, many of us, as though we have nothing. As though all of these great spiritual resources that God has given us as his children don't belong to us. And that's very, very discouraging to see so many Christians living like that. Look at verse 3 of Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Underline those three words. Highlight, circle, put stars by them, whatever you do. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Who gets those spiritual blessings? The saints. He has blessed us, the saints, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We have already been blessed with every spiritual blessing. If you are a Christian, you are spiritually rich. And it is so important that we understand this because so many of us are living as though we have no spiritual resources at our disposal whatsoever. So many of us are living as though whatever we can make out of this life to make it as good as we can is all that we have to live for, forgetting that we have an inheritance that is already ours. Every spiritual blessing, every blessing that emanates from the Spirit of God is yours if you're a follower of Jesus. Now, this is doctrine for dummies, so let me give it to you another way. Turn to 2 Peter Chapter 1, if you're uh, in Ephesians, it's just a few books to the right toward the back of your New Testament. Not 1 Peter, but 2 Peter. I want you to go to 2 Peter chapter 1, and let's listen to how Peter says it in his introduction of his letter. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. And so 
many Christians have this mindset that says there are some really spiritual people and then there's the rest of us. And there are some people who just seem to have access to the mind of God. There are some people who just seem to be able to understand the scriptures. There are some people who just seem to be able to live in the fruit of the spirit of self-control and joy and peace and hope and all of that. And, and then there's the rest of us and we just sort of struggle and we, we don't get it and we have a hard time applying the scripture to our lives. And I'm here to tell you, if that is how you think of yourself ever, stop it. If you are a follower of Jesus, if the Holy Spirit indwells your life, you already have everything pertaining to life and godliness. You don't have to wait until you grow up as a Christian to start living in the victory that God says he gives us. Now, let's see what somebody else says about it. If you're in 2 Peter, go back about five or ten pages to the book of James and go to James chapter 1. Just a couple of books before 2 Peter. In James chapter 1, James says it another way. Here's what he says. James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Every good thing, every perfect gift comes from where? God comes down from God, and I love what James says, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So you might be thinking, well, okay, God is blessing now, God is giving some good gifts, but you know, next week I'm probably going to do something wrong, make him mad, and all the good gifts are going to stop, and all the blessings are going to stop, because God's going to change. Here's what you need to know about God. God doesn't change. All of this goodness that flows from God flows from him because of who he is. He pours out blessings. It's his nature to do so. You remember the old hymn, Count Your Blessings? Raise your hand if you remember that. Yeah, nobody under 30 remembers that. Okay. So, you know, we used to sing with a hymnal in our hands that had notes on it. Remember that back in the old days? Um, and, and there's this old hymn called Count Your Blessings. And if you remember it, the, the chorus says, Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. You remember that? And, and as Christians, we often get these opportunities to count our blessings. We're often told to count our blessings. We're often, even in meetings, like I do this all the time. In my grace group, I do this all the time. In our men's Bible study, wherever I get the chance. I, I like to open meetings by saying, what are you praising God for? Who's got something they're thankful for? What kind of blessings are you experiencing from God? So we can share those, so we get our hearts set in the right place, right? And we stop and we count our blessings. Now, if you've ever been in that situation or you've ever been in a meeting like that, what you will notice is that 90% or more of the blessings that people mention are tangible things right now, physical, material things. I got healed. I was sick and now I feel better. Uh, I was praying for a job. Now I got a job. You know, um, my, I needed money to put new tires on the car, but I was able to get a good deal on the tires. I'm praising God for that. Now, is it appropriate to praise God for those things? Yes, we're commanded to praise God in all things to give thanks, right? But isn't it interesting to note that when we think about the blessings of God, we tend to think with such small minds. Because what are the real blessings of God? What are the deeper blessings of God? Aren't they spiritual? 
Isn't it true that God gives us like the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all of that? Isn't it true that we have salvation and life because of him? And how often we don't even really think of those blessings. He says he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He's talking about spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. So what does he mean by that? Go back to Ephesians 1 and let's see if we can figure it out. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. He's told us that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Look at verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. You notice I stopped reading right in the middle of the verse there, which he lavished on us. I stopped reading there because um, the, next, the next sentence there is actually the beginning of the next thought. If you ask me, it belongs in verse 9. Um, and, and, you know, the knuckleheads that put this together decided it belonged in the back of verse 8, but it doesn't. It belongs in verse 9. And if you don't know this already, um, the verses and the chapters that we have in the Bible, they're not in the original. In the Greek and the Hebrew, they didn't do any of that. But it's the translators who did this so that we would be able to say, hey, open to James 1.17, and we'd all be looking at the same place. So we need these verses. But every now and then I run into a place and I go, what were they thinking when they divided the thought right in the middle of a sentence there and made that a different verse? So I'm reading through the first half of verse 8 where it says, which he lavished on us. Riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. We need to wrap our minds around this, church. We need to understand what it means to be a Christian who is a recipient of the blessings of the Spirit. If you are a Christian, what this means is God chose you. You're a follower of God because he chose you. Remember those old bumper stickers? If you're old enough to remember this, in the 70s, they had the bumper stickers that said, I found it. Remember Christians would have the I found it bumper stickers? I always scratch my head over that because I go, it implies that somehow God was like hiding a treasure for me. And if I just looked hard enough, I would find it. And I finally found it. Listen, if you're a Christian today, it's not because you found God. It's because God came along, saw you and pulled you up out of the mud and made you one of his children. The scripture is very clear. By himself, apart from the power of Jesus, no one seeks after God. No one. So you don't find God. God grabs you and rescues you. It's like you're, you're chained up and held for ransom, and he breaks in and breaks the chains and rescues you and brings you from death into life. And so as we have come into that kind of relationship with God, we need to understand it's because he chose us. And there's implications to that statement. It means you didn't earn his love. You didn't earn your salvation. You don't deserve his grace. In fact, the definition of grace is merit that is given to us that we don't deserve. And so it, we got to get out of this idea that is so prevalent in our culture today that says, I'm going to do good. I'm going to be good enough. I'm going to impress God and God's going to like me so much that he's just going to say, I can't be without you. Of course, I'll let you into heaven. 
How many times have I talked to people about their spiritual condition and their answer is, listen, I know what you believe and that's all good for you, but I have my own plan and my plan is this. When I get to stand before God, I'm just going to tell him, listen, um, I have a lot more good works in my life than I do bad works and I'm going to trust that he's going to be okay with that. Here's the problem. The Bible says that apart from Christ, my best works are filthy rags. I have nothing to offer him until he gives me this blessing. Until he gives me life, I've got nothing to offer him. So I didn't earn it. I didn't cause it to happen. In fact, um, God's blessing of you started before you were even born. This is a big concept, and there's a big theological word in verse 5, so let's just go ahead and take it on. Verse 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. He predestined us. Now, there's one of those big theological words that if you put a bunch of theologians in a room, they will yell at each other about the meaning of this word. But it's really not that complex. I mean, the context of this passage and other passages show us what it means that he predestined us. He predestined us to adoption. That means that your spiritual destiny was determined in advance by God. Let me say it again. Your spiritual destiny was determined in advance by God. Now, that's hard for some of us to hear because we really like the idea that I'm going to work my way to God. But it doesn't work that way. It says that he chooses us before the foundation of the world. That's how far it goes back. Look at verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Now, if he chose me, if he chose you before the foundation of the world, guess what? You weren't born yet. So if you weren't even born, if you weren't even conceived yet, at the time that he chose you, how could it be based on your works that he chose you? How could it be based on your merit? How could it be based on anything you have to say, look what I can offer you, God. You should pick me for your team. You didn't even exist when he chose you. And so it says he chose us before the foundation of the world. Now, we're going to be revisiting this throughout the book of Ephesians. So, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time unpacking this, but we're going to keep coming back to it because it's foundational. But I just want to make one thing absolutely clear. If God determined your spiritual destiny in advance, that is predestined you, that means one thing for sure. You didn't earn your salvation. If you are a follower of Jesus today, it's not because you're good enough or smart enough or impressive enough or even that you were just lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time. It's because he set his love on you. That means that God loves you, not because you are lovely, but because he's God. He loves you not because you are lovely, but because he's God. It is his nature to love those upon whom he sets his love. He chose to love you. And you might say, well, that's insulting. How can you say I'm not lovely? Listen. I'm not saying you're not lovely. God's word is saying you're not lovely. So you're going to have to deal with that. If I'm not lovely, see, and all of us know this, and this is what uh, pairs at our sense of stability spiritually. 
is we know that there's a lot about us that's unlovely. And every experience that we have with love is with people, and people don't love perfectly. And so if I'm unlovely, I might lose someone's love. But God's love was set upon you before the foundation of the world, before you even had a chance to be lovely. And so he loves you not because you're lovely, but because he's God. He chose you, and he chose to love you out of pure grace. Now, I'm going to try to open this up even a little bit more because there's another theological term, and theologians love to speak Latin. I don't know why. It's because... uh, They're impressive that way, I suppose. But they love to speak Latin. And there's a Latin term called ordo salutis. And ordo salutis basically means order of salvation. And I don't know why they don't just say order of salvation, but they say ordo salutis. Ordo salutis basically has to do with how, how, what are the steps involved of a person coming into a relationship with God and being saved? So I want to try to sort of lay this out for you, and we're going to keep revisiting this. We'll come back to it in in future sermons, but, but think of it this way. First of all, there's something we need to know about God. God is not bound by time, right? He exists outside of time. He is eternal. He has no beginning. He will have no end. Amen? Are we together on that? Okay. So God exists outside of time, but we exist in time. So everything that happens in our lives happens in some sort of a chronological order, Right? And so it says that before the foundation of the world, we were chosen by God. There is a set of things that are put into motion. Foreknowledge, it says he foreknew us, then he chose us, and then uh, at some point you were born, and then at some point you grew up and became uh, able to understand the gospel, and he gave you the faith to believe, and you acted upon that faith if you're a Christian today, and... At that point, you were justified or set free from your sin and made right in the eyes of God. And then there was a process called sanctification that began to take place in your life where you're growing up in Christ. And the day is coming when all of us are going to be in heaven, either because we die and and transfer into what is actually life, or because the Lord comes back and gets us one way or another. We're all going to end up in heaven if we're followers of Jesus. And so you see the chronological thing? Foreknew, predestined, born, called justified, sanctified, glorified. It lays out for us on a chronological line. But for God, it is one act. And it takes place outside of time. God is sovereign. He is not able to be thwarted. Nobody can change what God sets in motion. What God chooses to happen always happens. No one can overcome him. So if God shows you before the foundation of the world... You are already glorified. Let me show that to you. Go to Romans chapter 8. Just a couple books back to the left from Ephesians. Before 1 and 2 Corinthians, you come to Romans. Go to Romans chapter 8. We're going to begin in verse 28. With that verse that we all love so much. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Can you say amen to that? That's good, right? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that we would be the firstborn, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Okay? It all comes out. 
one after another after another. In every one of these, both in Greek and in English, it is in the past tense. He foreknew me in the past tense. He predestined me in the past. He called me in the past. He justified me in the past. And he glorified me in the past. Except I'm not glorified yet, am I? At least I look in the mirror every morning and go, I don't think I'm glorified. Pretty sure I'm not glorified. And yet it says here that God himself says, I am glorified. So what's up with that? Obviously, I'm not yet glorified. And yet, it says I am glorified. The reason is because once God sets this salvific process in motion, we nothing can be done to stop it. So if you've already been foreknown, if you've already been predestined, if you've already been called, if you've already been justified, you've already been glorified. You're just not experiencing yet it because you haven't gotten that far on your timeline. But God, who is outside of time, looks and says, you're already glorified. So here's the point. You didn't earn your salvation. It was given to you as a gift by God. And he says, it's already done. You know what that means? It means that if you're a Christian, you're already spiritually rich. Not because of your efforts, but because of who your daddy is. Have you ever heard of Steve and Susie Perry? Anybody ever heard of them? I'm going to put their picture up on the screen. You know these guys? Um, maybe you've heard the name Seegerstrom. Have you ever heard of the Seegerstrom family? Okay, the Seegerstrom family is um, sort of, uh, they were early landowners down in what is now Orange County. So if you ever go down there, you'll find the Orange County Center for the Performing Arts, right? It's the Seegerstrom Hall. That's because they built it with their own money and gave it to the county. And the reason they have all that money is because what's across the street from there is this little strip mall called South Coast Plaza. Maybe you've heard of it. They own that. They own all the land that's around that. And so they are one of the richest families in the world. Their, their wealth is in the multi-billions. Uh, Steve is a, is a lowly Lutheran pastor who happened to get lucky when he went to APU and meet this girl named Susie Segerstrom, and he married her, and he married into the Segerstrom fortune. And now they are so rich today that they are both retired from everything else, but they both have full-time jobs, and their full-time job is this, to give away money. That's what they do eight hours a day. They head up something called the Harvest Foundation, and they give away money to Christian causes that they believe in. So if you go to APU, by the way, now, you will find there's a whole bunch of buildings and things like that with the name Segerstrom or Perry on them, and that's because they just, they just write checks for like $50 million and give people stuff, okay? My wife and I had the pleasure of spending a weekend with them, and, and we were at their, we went to two of their homes. They got a lot of homes. We went to two of their homes, and I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that uh, we were served dinner by their butler and maid staff. And we ate with gold-plated flatware. That's a lot of money. <laughs> Those people have a lot of money. And they are wonderful, godly people, and we're so blessed to know them. But here's the point. They have two kids, Matt and Jenny. Both of their children are adopted. You talk about hitting the mother load. <laughs> These kids who were orphans got adopted by the richest people in California. Oh my gosh. And now they're grown, and now they are incredibly wealthy, 
and they live with all of this opulence and wealth and all of this kind of stuff. Why? Because they worked hard and earned it? Nope, because they got adopted by the right people. So why say this? When we look at those lives of their kids, it's hard not to be envious, isn't it? If you envy them, don't. Because your daddy is richer than their daddy will ever be. We are talking about wealth in the spiritual realm. We are talking about blessings that go so far beyond what we normally think of as blessings. And he says, not because of anything you've done, but because of who he is, he has adopted you, and he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and all the spiritual blessings are already yours. Not because you deserve it, but because God has chosen you to be his child. And here's the really great part. You can't take credit for your salvation because you didn't earn it. He gave it to you. But by the same token, you know what that means? You also can't lose it because nobody can take it away from him. His power to save you is the same power that sustains you if you've been foreknown, if you've been predestined, if you've been called, if you've been justified, if you're being sanctified, you've already been glorified. There's nothing you or anyone else can do to mess it up. It is already done. It's already done. God has already taken care of it. You have already been bought with a price. You have already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And there is nobody and there is nothing that can ever change that. What shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Absolutely nothing. Not because of who you are, not because of what you've done, but because of who he is and because of what he has done. Now I'm going to ask you to just bow your heads, and Ricky is going to sing. And I just want you to listen to the lyrics as he sings. And I just want you in your heart to just lift up praise to God for what he has done for you. because of who I am, but because of what you've done, not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. I am a flower quickly fading, here today and gone tomorrow, a wave tossed in the ocean. Calling, 
Would you catch me when I'm falling? You've told me who I am. Who am I? Who am I? The eyes that see my sin would look down on me. Watch me rise again. Who am I that the voice of the calm and sea would call out through the rain and calm the storm in me? Not because of who I am, but because of what you've done. Because of what I've done, but because of who you are, I am a flower quickly fading here today and gone tomorrow. A wave tossed in the ocean, a vapor in the wind. Still, you hear me when I'm calling, Lord, you catch me when. together today as your children, not by rights, not by birth, but by adoption, chosen by the King of kings and Lord of lords to receive life and every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Everything pertaining to life and godliness is ours as every good and perfect gift comes down from above. You are the Father of lights and there is no shifting shadow or variation with you. We stand in that truth together. We honor you and praise you. And we get to call you daddy. We live in the inheritance that is ours. Oh God, fill us with faith that we might actually live like the children of the king that your word says we are. And forgive us, God, for living like paupers in spite of it all. God, give us your joy. Give us your peace. Give us your hope that we might walk in the newness of life that you have paid such a dear price to give us. Who are we? We are yours. And that's all that needs to be said. We give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you. Go and walk with the King.